I'm Alex Trepchinski. I'm Angie Check. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. My guest on this episode of the Holistic OBGYN Podcast is very near and dear to me. Her name is Rick Safries. She is a, a PhD. She's had several home births herself, and she now lives her life teaching people about the history of vaginal breech birth from a policy standpoint, from a data on safety, efficacy, etc. standpoint. And she teaches birth workers like myself. I've been to two of her workshops on the maneuvers that might be required if you're attending a vaginal breech birth. So back in 2001, the, the short end of this is that a study came out that said, that suggested that the risk of permitting a woman to birth a baby, but first, that the risks of that outweigh the benefits. And that's a pretty simplified explanation and argument, in my opinion. Because nowhere in medicine do we get one study that should change the entire practice of a profession. But that's exactly what the term breach trial of 2001 did. And the biggest problem with the trial was that, yes, there's a one in a million chance that something bad will happen, right? It's not really one in a million, but it's, it's far less than 1%. Based on that alone, we stopped counseling women, fully counseling women on the risks, benefits, alternatives to having a C-section primary C-section for a breech baby. And because we stopped counseling women to do that, women started just accepting that a C-section is the way to go. And due to the fact that women were then no longer giving birth but first, birth of their baby but first, we stopped teaching residents how to manage this, right? So when you give a person any sort of, for any intervention, let's say that you've got an abscess, right? You can either treat with IV antibiotics or it's probably better just to, to just drain all the pus out of there and open that space up and get some antibiotics flowing and, and let's really take care of it. But you would have to give them the risks, benefits, alternatives to the incision and drainage, right? That it's a minor surgery, but it's a surgery nonetheless. And that person would have to say yes or no based on all the information. Are they going to assume the risk that it maybe it won't work, that it'll get worse? Perhaps it'll even get better. But it's not our job necessarily to take that decision-making away. I shouldn't even have said necessarily. It's not our job, period. With any procedure, right? And, and I don't really even see birth as a procedure. It's something I say all the time. But if a woman isn't, isn't given, isn't afforded the option to make an informed decision around how their baby is going to be born, and part of that being that, hey, it's fine if you want to have a breech baby. We haven't taught any residents. That, 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 that changes, that shifts the power dynamic so that the birth caregiver, the physician, midwife, whoever, is now put in a position where they can say, yeah, there are risks, and the risks are now even greater because we allowed one study to completely change the dynamic of this conversation. Meaning that if you go to a place, you know, let's say Europe, where breech birth is not as unusual, we haven't used our fear-mongering tactics as divisively in order to steer people away from giving 
birth to a baby but first, and instead choosing C-section, those midwives and doctors have seen more breech births. So in some ways, it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby the data suggested that perhaps the risk is greater. Fine. But instead of using that and having a greater conversation, we just changed the entire practice. So now residents like me, we never really got to do any breech training. We, I saw maybe one when I was in uh, residency. So this is what Rick Safries has done, has made a living doing. She travels the world, educates people about how to think about breach, what the data really shows. And the data shows, by the way, in trained hands, that the risks are actually negligible or, or at least comparable to the risks of a vertex baby being born, you know, head first. And so she's trying to retrain physicians and midwives in order to help attend these births in order for women to make a truly informed decision. So if you were, if a woman was, a, was, was having her birth attended by, let's say, Stu Fishbein or David Hayes, David Hayes is an MD who teaches with Rick Safries, those two individuals know quite a bit about facilitating a breech birth if something were to get trapped, right? Like an arm is stuck around the head or whatever else, and you, you need to use some maneuvers. And so the risks, if you're being attended by a birth keeper who's trained in these maneuvers, actually the, the risk profile, the, the stratification changes. So we have to teach people to do this in order for women to make fully informed decisions. And so to give some credit to the medical system, since we haven't taught any doctors over the past 20 years in order to attend breech births, in some ways they're right now. Now that we haven't taught anybody how to do it, yes, the risks of doing a breech birth, even in the hospital, are far greater than they perhaps were 30, 40 years ago when doctors were still doing this. They may have not liked doing this, but they at least knew what to do if they were presented in their labor and delivery triage with a butt-first baby. But perhaps the midwife who was caring for them at home, or perhaps the OB didn't notice it, or perhaps the baby flipped at the last second. And now the woman's in labor, and surprise... There's a butt crack coming out of the introitus as opposed to a skull. So it's a great pleasure to bring Rick Safries on my podcast. Um, she talks about, in this episode, a, about a particular instance in which a baby's head did get trapped, and there was very, very, very little that seemed to be working in order for it to be resolved. And she tells the story in detail and about how we can't use magical thinking in order to... Uh, delude ourselves into thinking that things always go well in childbirth, whether the baby's butt down or head down doesn't really matter. So just because you learn the procedures on how to do a C-section, let's say, doesn't necessarily mean the C-section is going to go flawlessly with only a half a liter of blood loss and the mom's going to be up and walking the next day. It doesn't work like that. And so Rick's is a, a, a trove of information and um, I feel very grateful to call her a friend and mentor. So without further ado, grab yourself a, a cup of... Uh, Hot tea, hot cocoa, or maybe even like an Organifi green juice. Something to, to make you feel good. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Rick Safries, Ph.D. Hello again, Rixa. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Uh, you and I first met, I don't know, years ago, but I had um, been introduced to Stu Fishbein when I was in residency. And I think between him and Milo Chavira and Hermine Hayes-Klein, 
eventually you and I got in touch and um, then I attended your breach workshop up in Western PA back in, I think that was 2019, if not mm-hmm. even sooner, maybe 2018. And um, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you and I have talked about at length with David Hayes about the sort of complexities of breach birth from a data standpoint, from a safety standpoint, from a, what do you actually do if you're a doctor and a baby's rumping? And so we're not going to do a lot of that today. If anybody's interested in the actual conversation around what happened to breach birth, here are some highlights from that conversation. Back in 2001, there was the term breach trial, which changed the practice of obstetrics and residency training years ago. But really, the study itself was methodologically flawed. It suggested that perhaps babies are going to get stuck in the birth canal. Their heads are going to get stuck. Baby's going to die. And therefore, that, that extremely low, low risk of something bad happening sort of put the kibosh on even attending breach birth. So every baby that came in butt first was going to come out through the abdomen, right? So that's, that's kind of how we're, where we're at now. And that's why you're doing a lot of the trainings that you're doing. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. outside of the U.S., randomized control trials around the world had actually demonstrated that in trained hands, vaginal breach birth is, is really no more dangerous or safer than, than when a baby's coming down head first. So in your workshops, you talk a lot about these things. There's been all these other analyses that have, uh, you know, meta-analyses and composite studies that have sort of corroborated what you and David have been presenting in your workshops. Uh, what, what I will do is I'll include in the show notes for this episode references back to that episode so that if people are really interested in the dynamics and the, the technicalities of this and, and really kind of why you and David are doing your work, they can find that there. Today, you and I are going to talk about some other things. So first and foremost, how are you? I know you're a little under the weather, so thank you for doing this. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, well, as well as to be considered that we have four of the six of us in our family down with COVID right now. We escaped it for two years and it caught up with us. So <laughs> my voice is a little scratchy. My head is a little bit uh, not quite as clear as it might have been when I wasn't sick, but I'll do my best to make this interesting yeah. nevertheless. And if you hear yeah. kids in the background, yes, I have four <laughs> noisy children. So, <laughs> And you also gave birth I've at home. I've given them the stare of death. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think all four babies were born at home. Yeah. Um, the first was planned unassisted. The last three had a CNM who was very hands-off, but number three was um, unassisted, not on purpose, but she didn't get there fast enough because she didn't take me seriously <laughs> when I told her to come <laughs> right now. She's like, it's your third baby. I think I remember reading that those ones go slower, the third one or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> of course and, not. And <laughs> um, had to resuscitate her on my own. And that was that was just fine because I knew oh my what gosh. to do. And wow. Number four was, number four midwife was there. I had a videographer, I had a photographer. Every birth, I'm like, okay, well, I invite some more people. And I, you know, at first I didn't film or take any pictures. The second one, I took some video after. So by number four, I'm like, come, it's a, you know, it's still pretty private, but I let a little more people into my space. And I actually had an OB that I had invited to come attend, but he wasn't able to make it. But yep, all four born at home and it really great experiences. And I just feel so lucky. Like I never had to go through the traumatic, awful birth to get to the good birth. I just skipped that. I just went to the good births. It was great. It's a good birth plan. Skip yeah. the bad parts, go straight to the good birth. Just go straight to great. it. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I don't know if I told you that we had a home birth here. Our second baby just came at home um, about two months ago. I didn't know that. I was yeah. actually didn't realize she was already she or he. I don't she is here. We got, I'm a girl born. dad. Oh. Yeah, and uh, oh, I that, totally missed the news. I know. I forgot to. I forgot to tell you. I'm sorry. Well, I, I'm telling you now. Uh, we had a baby at home, and Stephanie went all the way to like I think it was on her due date. Actually, it was you know 
either it was going to be Saturday or Sunday was the due date, depending on who you ask. And um, on Saturday at 5 p.m., her water broke. She wasn't feeling great during the day. Water broke at 5. We called our friend uh-huh. Sarah to do some breath work with us because we figured, okay, it's the beginning. We had a six-hour labor from beginning to end the first time. If we get a faster labor, great, but mm-hmm. we were still planning mm-hmm. for the worst. I'm using air quotes here. Not that it's necessarily a bad thing to have a long labor, but... You know, every woman hopes for that. Like you said, yeah. like, just just get right to it and let's push this baby out. And um, not everybody has that, you know, has that good fortune. But 6 p.m., our friend Sarah came over. We were breathing. We got the birth tub set up. We had our midwife there. There's a home birth doctor mm-hmm. here who's training to do this. And so she was there as an assistant. Okay. And there was also a midwife student. We were on the bed breathing. And by 6.40, Stephanie was like, Sarah, you got to go. Her underwear came off. The midwife was there and bam, baby out on the bed. We didn't even get into the tub. So oh. we had like less than two hours from beginning to end. And she was asleep. Little Everly Rosa was asleep. Apgars were 10 and 10 after we woke her up. But she was just no coning, nothing. Like the portal opened, the baby came out and the portal closed and we went into postpartum bliss. So (laughs) it was a beautiful experience. It really was. Yeah. That is so wonderful. It was lovely. (laughs) And she was about a pound bigger than Penny, which is even more interesting. So, Uh so anyways. Oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So Rick, so you're a PhD. Your whole career really has been researching birth. Specifically now, you're you're focused on breech birth, and you've published with Stu, mm-hmm. Stu Fishbone. You've you've this is like your whole career is focused around how do we empower women and birth keepers with the information mm-hmm. and the skills to to give women the ability to birth autonomously, whatever that means. Even if it is to the hospital, at least they now have the information. That's mm-hmm. kind of a big part of my practice. So. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what we normally, you know, what people think when we talk about breech birth is like, yeah, it's great when it goes well, but then there is that chance, just like with a cephalic baby, that something might not go as planned. You know, we might end up with some entrapment. We might end up with a protracted labor that maybe the baby's heart tones are down. Who knows? There's a whole kinds of things that can happen, but that's why you have skilled people that can rush to the scene. And um, you told me before we started recording that you were recently... Um, sort of involved in a birth like this. So, so talk me through that a little bit, and, and how did you respond? Yeah, we were we were asked to assist virtually with a, a first time mom having a breech baby in another country here in Europe, where the C section rate is astronomically high. There's nobody to help them in a hospital, so they were doing it with midwives who trained as much as they could. You know, took our online training um, and studied and studied and prepared for it. Um, mm trying to support this woman and give her a vaginal birth, which she really, really wanted. And it was a really, really long, slow labor. I think like 36 hours and just slow, you know, never really got, didn't seem like a good contraction pattern. I mean, everything was just, just so slow. Yeah. Um, who knows if there was like emotional energy going on that the woman hadn't worked through too. There's probably some, I don't know. I don't know her well. So we're just kind of, you know, sure. observing with our camera. And there's a lot know, of non-physical things that play into that. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it was, I mean, it was clear that given the long, slow labor that didn't seem to be functioning very ideally that, you know, it it did make me wonder if the the pushing stage would also be like that. And the pushing, you know, the pushing stage was quite long um, in the terms of a long time to get the descent down to the perineum. And we were, we were kind of on and off during the labor helping virtually. And then we asked them to let us know as it got closer. And so I think we got there you know, maybe a half hour before, before full rumping, but just a very long, slow descent of a, you know, a, a dropped foot breach. So you, you saw one leg coming out far in advance of the other and whether it started complete or incomplete, I can't remember exactly. Sure. I have to look over the video footage, but you know, it was, it was 
and the expulsion stage, even after rumping was long, 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 not very, didn't feel like there were great contractions. And so it was a, it was a difficult birth. Yeah. Well, I got to get a drink of water. Go for it. Yeah. You're the one that's recovering from mm-hmm. illness. So take your time. So you guys were going to support them remotely, meaning on like an iPad or something. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. To give them, you know, some extra set of hands and eyes because they didn't have access to anybody else locally. And, um, you know, we're willing to do that, especially if people have taken our training and kind of are familiar with yeah. our approach and the maneuvers, you know, so, um, so I and another, um, midwife who's done about 500 breaches, um, <sighs> we were both there virtually from different parts of the world. Wow. And wh- where was that midwife located? At the time she was, I think she was on an MSF missions. I don't remember where, because she's done a couple different missions since then. So I don't remember which location she was in at the time, but wow. 500 is a lot of breach births. Yeah. She's wow. done a lot. Yeah. We work with her quite a bit at Breach Without Borders, but baby rumped, which means the widest part of the hips passed out of the perineum. That's where we kind of start the clock. And I started it and, you know, I was concerned because baby just slow, slow, slow progress. And about seven, eight, nine minutes in, the baby was still stuck in a side facing position down to about the armpits and hadn't really moved much past there. So not great, not really strong contractions, you know, just baby didn't look like it was in great shape. I mean, it's hard to tell from the camera, but you know, at that point it was, it was tricky. Cause I, I felt like I had to say it's time. Mm. We need to do something. This mm. baby needs assistance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a relatively long time. The baby does not look great. And the baby has not made much, if really no progress for several minutes at this point, you know, has not moved out of this right. position or descended any further. And these are all classic signs of a baby needing assistance. It's one thing to teach it because I teach these things all the time. You know, I teach them on our online courses. I do some of the hands-on training when I'm available, you know, I run people through simulations. Sure. And, and eight minutes probably feels like an eternity. I mean, you're, you're, that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm pretty clear when I teach, I'm one part of the team. I'm the academic arm and David is the clinical arm, but of course, there's some blurring of the lines in that we're both teaching the same thing. And sure. Even though I'm not coming from it, from a clinician's perspective, um, I, I, I can still give, I can still educate and teach and, you know, and I felt it was appropriate for me to to suggest an intervention at that point, you know, they needed to do a maneuver to help release the arms and facilitate the birth because the baby was not in good shape and mm. clearly not moving Yeah. from that position it was stuck in. You and David both emphasize in your workshops that really the best approach, if you're a, if you're a birth worker and a baby comes down, you're surprised, oh my gosh, there's a butt there. Oftentimes the best approach, 99% of the time, it's going to work to just be hands off and let the baby kind of come. And this was not one of those cases. I just want to sort of insert that. This was not one of those cases. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm the first one to always try to be as um, uninvasive as possible. I yeah. mean, that's, I had four babies at home because I didn't want people doing things that were not necessary. Right. And it's, it's a, it's a heavy responsibility to kind of be the one who makes a call, you know? And then from that point too, it was tricky because the midwife who was at the perineum was not the one who had the microphone in her ear. It was the other midwife who Ah. actually could hear us on her little headphones. And so it was going through one midwife translating into another language to another midwife and back. And it was not a great setup in retrospect. Now we've changed. If we're going to do virtual support, we always make sure that the one at the perineum is the one with 
hearing us directly. Yeah, yeah. Because it made, as soon as it happened, what happened is the midwife tried to do a rotational maneuver and couldn't. Um, and then the adrenaline and the panic in the room starts taking over and they're speaking in another language. And we're trying to relay instructions to the midwife who's then trying to relay it to the man who's trying to do the maneuvers. And oh, that's at scary. a certain point, the other midwife said, just don't talk to me. And so we're telling instructions, not, not knowing that the midwife who's catching can't even hear us because she had told the other one to not talk to her because it was too mm. stressful. Um, so I'd have to, I don't, I'd need to review the video. I don't remember the timing, but within a, f- a few minutes after that, she did manage to release the arms and get the baby oriented back towards sacrum anterior. So, you know, facing towards some other spine as you want to see. Um, and then we had an extended head entrapment. Wow, man. So it started with a nuchal, a nuchal arm, right? And then it went to a head something entrapment? Something with an arm or some something that, you know, yeah. And then, so it's like a double whammy. She Jeez, got hit with oh, everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and so she, she resolved the arm issue, but then the head was very, very stuck. And so she tried everything in the book. She tried the shoulder press. She tried the rock and roll. She tried, you know, um, she was upright at one point. Then she was flipped over to supine. She tried a Marisos Millivit. And again, mm. us not realizing the midwife couldn't hear us. You know, we were just kind of watching at a certain point for a few minutes, the camera got moved to the side. We had no idea what was happening. And for the last like six minutes of this head entrapment, we had no visual. Oh my gosh. And we could just hear these panicked noises. And we didn't mm. even know at what point if or when the baby was born. And after the baby was born for many more minutes after that, we didn't know if the baby was alive because we didn't have a camera. They were too busy doing whatever. Wow. And so I think, I think it was about 15 minutes into the process. They got the baby out. We're estimating because we had no visual and the, you know, their notes didn't, they couldn't take notes. They were busy trying to keep. So from the time that the butt was out to the moment of delivery. Probably about 15 minutes, which is wow. very long. I mean, long I think the longest time. of David's physiological breaches has been about eight minutes. Um, that's very long. You know, <sighs> I, I honestly was like, this baby might not have lived. And what a heavy burden, you know, not just for the parents and the midwife, but also for me who they're, you know, they had asked to assist and also, you know, and the other midwife who was assisting um, and trying to give some direction. And it's, it's hard. I, you know, I don't claim any extraordinary knowledge other than what I've gained through a lot of studying and, and interacting with, with other providers and other researchers. But I also did feel that there, you know, you realize you have a responsibility and it, it's just a heavy thing to carry, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wondering if you made the right call at the moment. Um, wondering if, if this child dies is, am I somehow, you know, at fault in the sense of just because I'm involved, not, not a legal standpoint. I don't care about that, but just more just, you know, is this partly on me in some way? Right. 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 Fortunately, the baby did survive. Um, so the baby was born. The midwife tried all sorts of things. Then off camera, she tried more. And then finally, she cut an episiotomy. And essentially, in the woman was supine, I think, at that point. Inserted her hand in all the way to the back of the head and scooped it forward and flexed it and got it out. Um, which is, you know, she tried everything she could. And that's definitely one way of getting it out. Um, and they call... So the... Um, they did, re- they resuscitated for a couple minutes, um, you know, called the ambulance to come because it was clear that this baby would need to hosp- transport to the hospital. Um, mom was kind of 
you know, a little bit in shock and, and having a hard time even processing what was going on. Um, the baby did go in for a cooling protocol. And I, as far as I know, it, it, this baby's doing well. Um, I haven't had any follow-up for the next, last few months, so I don't know what the what kind of more longer-term prognosis is, but it seemed sure. like the baby was doing well. Um, I think it had a little bit of lingering issues with with some of its eating reflexes. I think that was the only thing that was left, that they were a little bit kind of like, is this related to the birth or what's going on? Hmm. I could be totally wrong because I, I, this is just coming from my head. But Yeah, yeah, right. But I just want to acknowledge the – it's one thing to get the training – and you have all these nice maneuvers in your head and you've maybe practiced them on the simulators, right? And you've thought through them, but, you know, it, it is, it, it's another thing when you have to actually attend the birth mm. and it's not as easy and it's more messy and there's a lot more adrenaline and there's people freaky out in the room, you know, and it doesn't, the things that are supposed to work don't work because let's be honest, sometimes the maneuver you've been taught fails. Right. And all you know is you have to keep going and you can't stop trying and you have to get the baby out and there's nobody else who can do it for you. Like that feeling is so uncomfortable. I don't, in some ways I understand why you would just want to bypass that and just do a surgery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Me too. Me too. It gives me compassion for that, you know, and um, just not, never wanting to get, go there again. Right. Um. So anyway, it's it's a hard thing to deal with, and yeah. it probably would be useful for you if you're attending births to practice working through situations. You have heightened emotion and a lot of chaos around you. Like, I don't know how you could even practice this, but just you know, it might require some reflection because yeah. if you're going to be dealing with a very stuck baby and a really hard situation, you're going to have a lot more stuff going on that you hadn't been able to mm. account for in your nice neat, quiet simulation. So, right, right. Um, you know, it might be useful to, to work through some of that and try to figure out how you're going to deal with that in advance. So that yeah. when it happens, you've kind of practiced even working through that, the panic, the fear, the, the, you know, the whole body shaking or whatever might be going on at the time, people screaming in your ear, you know, everything you've learned go, leaving your mind, right. All of a sudden it's just a blank and you're just shaking and, you can't even remember what you're supposed to do next. Like all those kinds of things that might come up in the, in the moment. So yeah. that's, yeah. you know, um, I wish we could teach that in a simulation. <laughs> It'd be a, a useful skill of how to get past that and to still keep trying to get the video. If you don't follow me on Instagram, go find me at Nathan Riley OBGYN. You'll see that I do a lot of promotional videos while sitting in my cold tub, which gets down to like in this chilly Kentucky environment down to near freezing this time of year. And so I'll go in in the afternoon. It's like after I've done some work in the morning, I'll have a little like afternoon playtime. I'll sit in the tub, maybe do a video, maybe just leave my phone off to the side and sit back and try to breathe deeply for three minutes, get out, try to dry off and warm up. But it takes like an hour to get really back to where I feel like my nervous system is re-equilibrated with my ambient surroundings. So I always love having a hot beverage after, but I've already had my coffee in the morning and I didn't really have a great option. It was hot tea, you know, that, that works. But uh, I found this product through one of our sponsors, Organifi. It's called Harmony. It's an adaptogenic formula that's specifically good for the women in my life and my female clients. It has a whole bunch of superfoods and adaptogenic compounds from maca, chastri berry, shatavari, 
and it's made from a decadent dark chocolate. It is delicious. It's almost like the most healthy cup of hot chocolate you've ever had. You just put one scoop into your mug, you add some hot water and mix it up, and you're good to go. It helps you warm right back up. All of Organifi's products are USDA organic, they're non-GMO, they're vegan. This particular product also carries the label of glyphosate residue-free. It is an awesome product that I think you need to have in your coffee cabinet, next to your tea, next to your coffee. You also got Organifi Harmony. And the good news is, as a listener of the Holistic Obituary Podcast, you can go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash beloved, B-E-L-O-V-E-D, and you can save 20% on your purchase at Organifi. And you can check out their entire product line. You get discount on the whole thing, but I am particularly excited about this new cacao product, Harmony. So go to Organifi.com slash beloved, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash beloved, and you'll save 20% on your purchase. I can't recommend it enough. Let's get back to my conversation now with Dr. Freeze. Well, that story just elicited so many. And by the way, thank you. I just want to acknowledge that it's it takes a special person to also acknowledge that, hey, sometimes things don't go well. And it, in, in David's words, it's, it would be magical thinking that every single one of these births is going to go just the way that you saw it on YouTube. And there's a lot of people yeah. out there advocating for home birth or this or that or whatever. But when the rubber meets the road, if you aren't practiced in managing your own nervous system, when things get scary in surgery, in birth, driving, <laughs> You don't know how you're going to perform. You don't know what you're going to do. And if you freeze up and you're the person there that's not, not able to freeze up, then that's actually, uh, you know, compounds the problem. So as you were telling that story, I just remember multiple attendings of mine in residency who had had that one bad thing happen and damned it if they weren't, if they weren't going to make sure that that thing didn't happen again. And sometimes that yeah. leads to OBGYNs or midwives or whatever to do something that they would say, never in my life would I ever do that. Like an episiotomy, for mm -hmm. example. Well, if that woman, if yeah. this midwife hadn't practiced an episiotomy or didn't know the ins and outs of how to do that because episiotomies are, are, are horrible. Well, they're not horrible. They're only horrible if you're doing it routinely on every single woman. But sometimes you may mm -hmm. actually have to do this horrific thing. And so, yeah. you know, the practice, the, um, the simulation, you know, with something like postpartum hemorrhage, these are common things, let alone a, a head entrapment for a breech birth. But like, these are those common things that everybody out there who calls themselves a birth keeper, it, it would be magical thinking to presume falsely that things are just always going to be right. And the more births you attend, all it takes is that one really, really, really tricky thing where I've had a couple of midwives who have said, I, I, I had to step out. Like I, I had to step out of the profession because it was just too traumatic. And then maybe they go back later. Yeah. But, but, you know, yeah. again, it's, it, you guys really reiterate this in your training as well. Like, yes, these are maneuvers and yes, this will work most of the time. But in this particular case, you know, you're, you're going to sometimes run into trouble. And that's also not to say like this story should not be a lesson for those of you who want to think that breech birth is safe, right? There are babies that die in childbirth whenever everything else seems to be just fine. And a baby just dies at 39 weeks before labor even starts. To, to think otherwise is to deny our own mortality and our own humanness, right? Because things just sometimes don't go well. 
we can do our best to prevent those things. And hopefully we're not traumatizing or doing more harm by intervening when it's not necessary or not going to make any difference. But in the moment, you just don't know. So I appreciate you telling that story, Rixa, and thank you for just being vulnerable enough to share it and to sort of own it that you were there and you had a hard time with it. I think that that's important for us to all acknowledge our own, you know, humility. Yeah. And I think an important thing we did, it was within a day or two of the birth, we had a debrief with the entire team. Um, I went, I took the video, I inserted a timer into it. We went through step by step and said, okay, here's what, let's just watch it together and talk about it. And we paused it as many times as we needed to. And we talked through it um, step by step. And it's interesting because I was really worried that the team who was actually there at the birth thought that our presence there was not useful, Mm. you know, because it was so, it seemed so chaotic with us trying to relay things and, but they actually felt very helpful, even though we had the communication issues that we realized we didn't realize we were there at the time that now we are more proactive about ensuring when we set up our communication systems. But the midwife came away feeling very confident. She's like, I was able to manage some of the hardest situations I'm ever going to see in my life. And I got the baby out and I did it. And, you know, I'm willing to do this again. And I actually think that was a really good ending for this midwife. You know, she dealt with situations that nobody ever wants to see. And at the beginning of her, her, her breach, career and with never having really done very many. So that was really nice to have that. And it's a way of kind of completing the, the, um, the cycle of fear. So like when we have any event that spikes fear in this adrenaline response, right. We have the, the fight flight uh, or freeze response. Right. And that at some point you have to finish the cycle. And I remember reading a book, I think it was a book about barefoot running um, and this, the cycle that, our evolutionary bodies are meant to find a way to discharge all yeah. the stress that we have when we have a, a, a f- something that invokes a lot of fear or adrenaline, like, you know, a predator comes and we run away and in the act of running or fighting or whatever, we release at some point, we release that excess Shake energy it off. You know, and then yeah. Yeah. finish the cycle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, this was a way of, of releasing that extra energy, you know, like screaming at the end of uh, something horrible or running really fast at the end or let, you know, finishing mm. that. I think if we hadn't debriefed and gone through it and talked through it a few days later and really been very open with each other about the whole thing, I think it would have been a lot more difficult. Like I would have been stuck wondering what was happening. Did, were we, did we just mess everything up? Should we even be offering virtual support? You know, I think that was I think maybe, maybe the concept of finishing the cycle of adrenaline that you've put yourself through and making sure that you you take the actions to complete the cycle as a birth worker is a really useful thing to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it was really useful to, to watch this video together and actually to watch myself reacting and, and to get confirmation from the midwife who's done these 500 births and from David who then watched it because we were messaging him, but he couldn't get onto the video feed live. So then he watched the video the next day oh, in the debrief. Gosh, must have been so hard. And just to get the confirmation that, yeah, they both agreed with the calls that were made. Like, yeah, at yeah. every point, the suggested time to intervention was exactly what they would have done. And that, <laughs> you know, it, it was, you know, it, it's nice because as much as I teach it, you still, let's be honest, if I, I would be surprised if you don't second guess yourself as a yeah, of course. a birth attendant of course, at yeah. moments. And, you know, um, me not being formally trained as a midwife 
you know, I have, I do have the moments where I have, I mean, I, I never claim that I'm a physician or a midwife. I'm, I'm a researcher with a lot of hands-on experience attending yeah. births and birthing myself. But I, I do worry about people assuming I have expertise in areas that I don't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. So. Well, thank you for sharing that, Rixa. I'm, I'm really, I think it's actually very helpful for the community at large to hear the bad things as well. You know, in our first interview, we really talked about here's the things we can do to prepare. Here's the training we can get here, the maneuvers we can do if maneuvers are necessary. But we really don't often get to hear about when the thing doesn't work in breach or anything else, because number yeah. one, people don't want to talk about it. Number two, unlike you, many people wouldn't share the bad story because, you know, even if it is educational and, and helpful, um, because they don't want to be seen as as um, having been inadequate in that time. But even though this wasn't the best outcome, the baby was delivered and the baby is okay now. And so, you know, we got the best possible outcome given the scenario that unfolded. And so I think by sharing experiences of when things don't go well, I think is an important part of our education. If we're going to continue to, to promote breach as an option and to offer it to, to women, let's shift, let's shift course a little bit here. Um, I'm really, really happy that we, we got to really digest that. And I'm hoping that we can, maybe you can even share a little bit of the video with me whenever you guys are in town. Um, if it's okay with the patient, let's talk a little bit about one thing that you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about, this is a bit of a subtle, a sudden shift here, but one thing you did want to talk about mm -hmm. is the, the sort of division within the birth community between birth workers, right? And the stereotyping of OBs versus midwives and this and that. I'm just going to kind of let you take over this part of the conversation. I'm curious, what prompted you to like, what, what is, what is going on right now that, that you would like to address? Huh. I forgot. I told you about that. Let me, let me, let me back up and think. So I'm thinking this was prompted by the world that so many of us live in right now, which is full of anonymous internet mm. activity, mm -hmm. or maybe not anonymous internet activity. You know, um, we live, if you spend any time on social media, you know, you can't avoid all of the memes going around, the slogans that get thrown around, um, the three sentence Facebook posts that, you know, are meant to make a, a biting point, yeah, right. To your provocative for this, for the sake of being mm -hmm. provocative. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know that all too well. <laughs> Let's just say, I'm going to back this up a little bit to something that might seem totally unrelated, but um, I'll just say as a way of being brief and a little bit vague that having been raised in what I consider a high demand religion that definitely fills all of Steve Hassan's checkboxes for being in the bite model, behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions for controlling all four of those things. I'm really wary of anything that looks or smells like thought stopping phrases. And that's, mm. this is something coming from Steve Hassan, um, combating cult mind control. Yeah. I see in all aspects of life, if you're on social media, it's a really easy way to share things. These, these short little memes, these cute little or biting or snarky little expressions that in one or two sentences summarize kind of your whole viewpoint and send a message to the people who agree with you that just reinforces their beliefs and makes fun of and excludes or mocks the group that you don't believe you know, that you're 
arguing against or putting down or showing his, how they're ridiculous. And I'm not an expert in Steve Hassan stuff that I've, uh, but the one thing that stuck with me a lot is anytime you have a, an expression that shuts down critical thinking, mm. that's called a, called like a thought stop, uh, something that a thought stopper, there's a phrase for it that I'm getting wrong, but I see this happening so much. And even in the birth world. So think of these expressions that we throw around in birth. Uh, I'm just going to pull some off the top of my head. Birth is as safe as life gets. <laughs> Any, anything that kind of is a, a, a witty, you know, snappy kind of statement that you can throw around that sounds really great. And it just kind of shuts down the conversation like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, like. I don't know. I, I see these things going around everywhere, but in the birth community too. And anytime I see that, like my skin just gets kind of itchy and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to stuff away here. You know, I don't want to throw around these cute little slogans and phrases because that to me just makes, it puts my like bite model radar on high alert. Beep, 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 beep. It's a thought stopping phrase, right? Um, I grew up being surrounded by these thought stopping phrases that I didn't even realize were until I stepped away from, from orthodoxy and kind of took a little bit of an outside perspective and realized the extent to which these phrases that I had grown up hearing were actually stopping critical thought because you hear them. It's like if you throw the phrase like liberty to an American, right? (laughs) You know, even, even one word can be a thought stopping phrase, you know, like you play the national anthem, you wave, wave a flag that can often be a thought stopping phrase or action. It's anything that, that evokes an emotion or a thought enough that you kind of shut down any further discussion sure. because it's like that in itself is the end goal is just holding onto this phrase. Yeah. And I'm sure if I had more time and I didn't have COVID right now, I could think of some other wonderful thought stopping phrases that we see in the birth world get, that get thrown around, especially, you know, like a breach mama comes on to one of these Facebook groups and is like, my doctor only does C-sections, you know, I really want a vaginal birth. What can I do? And, you know, the people are like, Breach is totally safe. Breach is just a variation of normal. That phrase, breach is a variation of normal. It can act as a thought-stopping phrase, right? And I get so wary. And I always just say, like, let's just pedal back. And actually, it's a really complex thing. Like, there's risk and benefits to every choice. There's some risks that won't appear until long-term that you won't see in the short term. There's social risks and benefits. There's the judgment you're going to take you have a slightly higher risk of A, but a slightly lower risk of B. I'm not going to say breach is, a, breach is just as safe as cephalic or breach is just a variation of normal. What does that mean? You know, um, that's a thought-stopping phrase that often it gets used to not, to just kind of be like, it's just fine, go for it. You know, like this kind of like, boo doctors, boo hospitals, yeah. which is totally safe. And, you know, I'm not, you guys know me. I, I mean, I had all my four babies at home. I had my first unassisted on purpose. Like uh, it's not that I'm promoting being like home birth is bad or vaginal breach birth is bad, but I see this happening over and over and it happens in the birth world as much as it happens in politics or in religion. And I just want to say like, anytime you see a nice kitschy pithy phrase run away very fast and, you know, realize that it's probably just a way of people reinforcing their own belief systems. And it's a, it's an avoidance technique of actually really looking at the issue and dealing with discomfort and with complexity and with chaos and with uncertainty. So that's just my comment about that. Yeah. I don't really want to talk about COVID, but the, even before COVID, the 
the term anti-vax has been used in that way, you know, where somebody's like, well, are there risks and benefits? Uh, what are you asking because you're an anti-vaxxer? And it's like, no, <laughs> I want to know information. Right. And, and I know that that's a touchy subject for everybody, but that's, it's touchy because these little platitudes, these little, um, you know, thought stopping phrases are used all over our culture. And I think that it actually oh, totally. is, I think that social media is, you know, when you can only get 130 characters or whatever, we just love coming up with these little pithy phrase, you know, if, if phrases, mm-hmm. if somebody wants to push back against, I don't know, let's take like something I think is somewhat ridiculous, like the flat earth conspiracy, right? Yeah. This is something that 99.99% of the people on the planet are actually going to say, are you kidding me? The flat earthers or whatever, like they use that phrase. Well, what I've actually been practicing over the past year and a half is, okay, if I'm feeling confronted by this thing, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, another thought stopping phrase, or this person Mm -hmm. sounds like another whack job doctor who's speaking up against X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, it really behooves all of us to stop and like, let's just hear this person's argument. And then you will have the opportunity to counter with, perhaps that is the craziest thing I've ever heard or whatever else. But it's mm-hmm. amazing how, you know, as our world is becoming more divided, whether it's in birth, whether it's in, I mean, politics, whatever else, these little sh- um, sort of thought-stopping phrases are actually hurting us, right? They're hurting our ability as a community to come together to figure out what is it that we all want from our doctors and our hospitals or our politicians or whatever else. And uh, in a two-party system like we have in the United States, we I mean, it's like they used to call it mudslinging, right? You would just come up with that little phrase about this guy being a, a dirtbag or whatever else. And there's not really much more conversation after that. You know, and I had a good no, friend, no. even in the the Biden Trump election, where he was like, I was like, you know, I, I I'm kind of interested in what Bernie Sanders has to say. He was like, oh, that guy's a dirtbag. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, why is he a dirtbag? Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, he's just, he, you know, he, he this is that thing he said, or, or I saw this headline. It's like, okay, well, let's talk about what you, the information. Let's not just stop the conversation with this fun yeah. little phrase you've come up with Bernie Sanders is a dirtbag. And, you know, you and I could go on and on and on about this, but I think that it's more harmful than it is good when people are circulating those types of memes without really engaging or inviting conversation. It doesn't seem like they're inviting conversation. Yeah. Some of the best modeling of conversations and ways to talk about people and their deeply held beliefs in any, any form is the street epistemology approach. If you Google street epistemology, there's street this guy who goes around and just hmm. street epistemology. And he, um, he goes around and just films people and asks them, why do you believe what you believe? And just ask them why and ex- to explain without ever pushing back, but just like, how do you know what you know to be true and why? And the, the way he goes about just gently asking questions and repeating back to them what he understands their position to be and confirming is, is this, so you're, you're telling me you, you believe this thing because X, Y, and Z, is that correct? And they'll say yes or no. Well, not exactly. Well, I actually believe it because, and he, and it's just a conversation to ask them about how they know truth, yeah. whatever that yeah. means, you know, not just yeah. religious truth, yeah, sure. but whatever. And, and it's such a, it's such a, a, a calm and gentle way of just honestly trying to understand another person without an ulterior motive of trying to like right. even have a debate. It's not about even having debate or convincing 
It's just understanding in a really deep sense. And I think that approach is, is kind of a really great model of, yeah. of what we ought to be doing. But what we are doing is actually just these stupid pictures and memes and phrases and posters and very little actual communication going on behind I agree. it, even though we're, we're, we're communicating all the time without actually getting anywhere. So yeah, I, I don't yeah. think I have much more to say other than, you know, even in the birth world, we're doing it all the time. And, you know, the reason breach without borders courses are like 16 hours of information about breach is because I don't think you can even have a good conversation if you haven't had 16 hours of information because it's so big and so complex, you know, and I know I probably err on the side of being exhaustively detailed, but I, I think, you know, with this thing that's so complex, we need long conversations and a lot of time and a lot of information. Yeah. Um, and we, we can't really have easy answers at the end of it. You know, yeah. and I would hope that if you're coming out of a training that we've done that you, you, you appreciate the complexity of what you're getting into um, and, and don't come away feeling too cocky. <laughs> don't come away feeling, um, you know, I want you to feel confident, but also feel like a lot of respect for this, this massive skill set that you hopefully can acquire and, and hopefully will use well, but that it's, it might not be easy all the time. You've heard me talk about the potential detrimental effects of EMF now for weeks, months. If you know me, you know it's something that's always been on my mind. It's a great privilege of mine to be partnering with waveblock.com. They make these stickers that go on the earbuds that you're probably listening to this podcast on right now and stickers that go on the back of your cell phone. And the way that the stickers work is they block EMF. They block the radiation coming from the powerful modems that are sitting millimeters from your head or perhaps centimeters from your gonads and internal organs in your cell phone. You're holding your baby, you're breastfeeding your baby, you're flipping through your phone, and that phone is centimeters from a skull that is a couple millimeters thick. So we got to protect our kids, we got to protect ourselves, and WaveBlock is part of that solution. So if you go to waveblock.com, you can get a pair of these nifty stickers for your earbuds and for your cell phone. And you can save 25% using code BELOVED, B-E-L-O-V-E-D, at checkout. Go to waveblock.com, grab yourself some stickers, protect yourself from EMF. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Freeze. Yeah, I think that even the word believe, belief, you know, there's these signs that are really popular in our neighborhood here in Kentucky that, you know, they say something like, in this household, we we accept all colors of people, all races, or, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's a really kind of yeah. liberal montage of, of um, the essence of the democratic ideals, the, the liberal ideals here in the United States. Well, there's a line on there. The only one I really struggle with is we believe in science or something like that. And I understand why people started saying this, because there were people that were sort of like, to hell with science, let's bring back in religion, right? And, and let's, you know, let's, it's this, <laughs> this sort of um, archaic kind of dualism between science and religion, right? And so I get mm -hmm. that, you know, like they're preferring one over the other. But the problem with those, again, sci we believe in science is actually one of those thought-stopping phrases, in my opinion. And the reason is, because science is not a belief system. Science is a 
is the process of exploring truth. And that's going to require patience and perhaps many, many, many years of studying, perhaps experimenting if you're a clinical researcher or reading like you have for many, many years. And even you, if somebody, if there was a well-produced study that said, whoa, in people whose, you know, birthdays are in April because of astrology and everything else, we found that they have a thousand-fold a greater chance of dying in childbirth at home versus the hospital. That's a completely ludicrous hypothesis, by the way. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that if there was a really well done study that showed that we would all, anybody who thought that that's crazy would have to step back and say, wow, what was their methodology here? Like how, like what an unusual finding as opposed to saying that finding's not possible. You have to say, well, hell, they found that finding. Was this a completely fraudulent paper? Like what, what is happening here? You know, so, yeah. so, so the reason I bring all of this up is that anybody who's in the sciences, you have to understand that it is an evolving process. And if you're not open to hearing more information that may change or confront your bias, then you're not. That's actually antithetical to science. And um, exactly. we all need to be very open-minded about, number one, how we're um, applying information, but number two, what information we're sharing. And I guess last to your point if you want to re- if you're really a scientist, you need to be willing to engage in conversation. And that, that definitely doesn't involve posting a meme that shuts the whole conversation down because you quote, know the truth. It's just yeah. not, it's just yeah. not science. That's not the way it's supposed yeah. to go. I mean, and science really at its heart is proving something wrong. And if you can't <laughs> prove so it wrong true. over and over and over again, then you can actually accept it as, yeah. as true. Right. You know, provisionally true because everything is provisionally true. Nothing is really absolute, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had another thought I was going to say, and it just whizzed out of my head and flew off somewhere in COVID fogland. So <laughs> let's move on to the next topic. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's, let's move on to, I appreciate it. I, I didn't bring that one up right before that was in the show notes. You'd sent me the questions we had kind of formulated a few months ago before we uh, established a, a recording time. But I think that that's actually very relevant, even to those who want to pursue breach training. I think it's really, really important that we don't have all the answers, but as a result of not having all the answers, we can't put the kibosh on a procedure like the attending of a vaginal breech birth. In in other words, the baby out with the bathwater, forgive the pun. Yeah. Well, and actually the one thing I did want to say, um, and then we'll move on is that that's why my approach is to cast the biggest and the widest net possible and bring it all in and then look at it. Because the thing is with any topic you're researching in the scientific field, there's enough studies and there's enough bad ones out there that still make it into some kind of publication that you can almost find anything you want to prove your point to be true. That's exactly right. That's why you have to look at the vast, overwhelming majority of evidence privileging, you know, well done studies over not because, you know, uh, with anything you can, you can misquote an abstract that you never read the actual full text of, you know, and then you can quote the abstract in a meme and then the meme gets circulated and all of a sudden people are believing, well, look, this scientific research said this. And I'm like, actually, no, it didn't really say that because if you actually look in the full text and look at how they did their research. And so it's with breach with anything else, it's not one study. It's not even a couple (laughs) studies. It's the vast overwhelming, overwhelming majority of studies put together in conglomerate and analyzed. And you start to see patterns that get reinforced through multiple, multiple studies, you know, so one study can be really useful, but I, I try to look at everything and, and pull out what we can from everything that we have, you know, and yeah. read through what's more, you know, well done versus not as well done. But 
yeah, it's so easy to pick and choose. You can pick and choose anything you want if you only look at um, something that confirms your bias. Yeah, yeah. And we do that as humans. We all do that. Let's not deceive ourselves that any of us are objective. But, you know, I try my best with with the breach topic to really acknowledge my preferences, which are, you know, my bias is that every woman with a breach baby should have the choice of a vaginal birth with a skilled attendant if they choose. That is my unabashedly outstated goal, right? Yeah. But with that, I am trying to be really honest with what the research does and does not say. Um, and if, you know, in my home birth lecture, I'm pretty honest with the fact that the outcomes don't look great for home births with breaches at home with the data that we have. Now, yeah. Of course, the big caveat is that the data sets are not great quality. We have very little data, you know, we have really low numbers and they're not very well researched, but I don't hide the fact that that's what it says and that we need a lot better data to, to actually have any reasonable understanding of what the real outcomes of breach birth at home are, for example. Yeah. So let's move on. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do want to add one more thing to that. And that is that even in my residency training program, I realized that there were certain times when I was being challenged on how I was attending birth for X, Y, or Z reason, you know, like, Hey, you should need to be more hands-on or whatever else. And, and I started really kind of digging into the philosophy of science, right. And evidence-based medicine started off as a, Hey, let's collect all of the well uh, collected data, right? The responsibly unbiased collection of data. Let's look at all the studies. And then we're going to come up with as a, as a group, we're going to say, based on our best guess from the available data, looking at it through unbiased and unbiased lens, here's what we think is the best thing, treatment for X, Y, or Z. If, if you consider evidence-based medicine, going and finding the study that supports your own internal bias, you are absolutely practicing antithetical to science, period. That is actually not evidence-based medicine. That is finding that one study that supports the thing you want to do. And we all do this, like you said. But I do think that in the age of social media, I don't think people appreciate what that means. Just because there's one study that yeah. says that, there might be 99 that says something else. And the, more, totally. the better you get at this, I mean, you're a PhD, you're way better at, at interpreting medical literature probably than I am. But the better you get at statistical analysis and understanding how the, re putting yourself in the minds of the researchers and figuring out who paid for this study? What were their intentions? Was their hypothesis and null reasonable? Mm -hmm. And their methodology, did they account for all the confounders and all that other stuff? Only then can you look mm -hmm. at the conclusion and say, well, wait a second, look at your results here. Like, how is this your conclusion? Or, wow, I'm glad that this study was done. This is a great study. We better promote this one, you know? Yeah. And um, I lost my train of thought there a little bit. But uh, the, the, the bottom line being that the more that you can, analyze, the better you get at this, the more that you actually look at the full study through all of the boring methodology re sections and the outcomes and results and all of that, the more you realize mm -hmm. that if you're a trained epidemiologist, which is essentially a person who looks at stats and tries to draw conclusions, then you can use any study to support one side of the argument or the other. And we all know that, you know, the better we get at it. So it almost becomes this this two-sided sword, you know, this double-edged sword. But uh, anyways, yeah, I, I think that that was actually an interesting, an interesting uh, topic for us to, to dive into. Well, we've got, we don't have a ton of time left. Um, I want to save time for the goddess church. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really, th I mean, do you have any like a one-liner as to how people can meaningfully, uh, meaningfully connect with OBs in the community? Honestly, I think I don't know enough I don't have a short enough answer for that, that you yeah. should address it right now. Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, short of having your own OB that you can talk with, that's really been hard for even us as an organization to sure. 
you know, we have to wait for making a connection with a single person, usually inside inside some institution, and then getting an invitation. Uh, it's been really hard to reach out and um, find ways to to connect. And I think, you know, for individual women to connect with OBs outside of their own provider who takes care of them, I don't even know how you do that. Yeah. It's, it's been tough. So yeah. that's something I think we'll need to explore later because I, I don't think we have time to really delve into that adequately. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just uh, interviewed by um, Wade Lightheart on his uh, awesome health podcast. And he said, so how can people like, what advice do you have for women for talking to their OBs? And I was like, well, gosh, how much time do you have? You know, because there's Mm -hmm. so much cultural and, and, uh, and, and some of these oversight bodies like ACOG and whatnot, there's so many uh, powers at play, not least of which is the, the group that you practice in, if you're an OBGYN, that would uh, uh, sort of play into how you would counsel your patients or what you might be more comfortable or less comfortable with that to say that there's a magic box as to how to address, you know, issues with, you know, your, your care team is, uh, that's like a whole anthology right there. But what I will say is that if your doctor is not willing to answer questions around risks, benefits, alternatives to everything, then, it's, it's, it's sometimes I think a little bit harder to take their advice. So what I always tell women is, listen, if you are, if, if you're, if your doctor is not willing to engage you in a, in a, in a conversation around, you know, informed consent, which, which was, is what, you know, Brad Boots, Taylor and I called shared decision-making, then, you know, it's always possible just to find a new OB that is willing to say, listen, I think that this, this guy wants you to do this because of these reasons. There's also these benefits and risks that you should consider. I think that's an important part of what we are supposed to do as doctors, but many of us are not trained like that. So, um, but I don't have the secret as to how to meaningfully interact with an (laughs) OBGYN. Sometimes it is really hard. So, yeah. Well, um, Risa, let's spend the rest of our time uh, talking a little bit more. Let's take a 15,000-foot view of changing the maternity care system and really the care for women, um, which I think if we can improve on, then we're going to change the world. And I think that all of that, uh, conceptually, that is wrapped up in, in your concept of something we talked about. <laughs> it was one of those things where it was like you and I both realized we were talking about the same thing, and you actually have a a term for this, the, the goddess of the church. Tell me a little bit about that and how that pertains to the care for women. Yeah, it came into my mind around the time of the Madison Breach Conference in 2019, because we had this amazing team of speakers together, um, you know, kind of the dream team of Breach and also legal advocacy. And I just had this thought, I was, I was thinking, you know, the most protected classes and groups of people in the U.S. right now are religions. I mean, Religions have so many protections that nobody else gets. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it, you know, the religious right has been using that as a way to, you know, restrict access to reproductive health care um, under the guise of, you know, religious protection. But I was like, I wonder if we can, we can use religion as a way to, to get autonomy in birth without having to like change one little hospital or one provider at a time, because that, you know, the individual change is important, but you know, it's always like, you know, a woman has a baby, she has a traumatic experience. She fights to make it better, but then she has like two or three kids or she has busy life. You know, it's like all these problems and all these things going on that are never connected together and that don't have any kind of unifying force. There's like a a lack of cohesion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's all these just like individual problems and individual people trying to solve them. And don't get me wrong. I think that's great. Um, but I was thinking, you know, religious, 
religions are so, so heavily protected in the United States. I mean, we have protection for people to use peyote mushrooms if they're part of like the Native American church. That's right. Because that's part of their, you know, it's a schedule one substance, but people can use it and not get put in jail for it if it falls under the umbrella of a religious practice, religious belief. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if there's a way we can use religion as a shield or umbrella for the things that I'm trying to accomplish um, in a way that would be a lot more effective than just changing one person at a time or changing one hospital administrator at a time. And so I was thinking about this um, and I ran it by Hermine and a couple other people. We were sitting around having dinner after one of the conference days at this restaurant. And I was like, you guys have been thinking of doing something, some kind of a church that would protect all the things that I hold dearest. So this is the autonomy of life transitions is one thing that for me is, is key. So this is birth. This is being pregnant, getting pregnant, releasing pregnancies that are not wanted. This is death. Mm -hmm. This is how we die. Right. This is sex. Not that sex needs protecting the same way as birth, but like, you know, like vibrant, conceptual, joyful sexuality is a key value. Um, This is, caring for this planet that we live on yeah. and for the environment. Like that's another key value that I really held deep. Um, another one is protecting the ability to use plant and psychedelic, psychedelic medicines, especially for their therapeutic and healing uses. So I had all these things that to me were like, if I had to examine my core values and beliefs, you know, really these were the things that I care deeply about. And I'm like, having gone through, you know, this is getting back to my vague mentions of my religious upbringing, but, you know, I grew up in a really high demand religion for a long time. It worked for me until it didn't. And it became a real source of, of unhappiness for me and of stress. And I was the most unhappy I ever was whenever I would go. And I was just like, this is not working. Um, wow. I can't do this anymore. And I was just thinking, what do I really believe? You know, having lost my Orthodox belief in this religion I grew up in, you know, these literal beliefs that I had, um, that my entire family system had generations, six, seven, eight generations back. All of my family are part of it, you know, and almost every branch of the family. And, and I thought like, if there's anything I believe in, if I, if I know anything, it's these things. Hmm. Like, I don't know if there's an afterlife. I don't know if there's a deity. I don't know if any of these things that I assumed were true for a lot of my life are true, but I know that here and now, these are the things that I care about. Like, these are my core beliefs. And I just said this, this, if I were to ever form a church, this would be it. Yeah. Um, and it's the goddess church. And, um, I just, you know, maybe I'll just write, maybe I'll just read briefly some of the things I just wrote down as a, a rough draft set of creeds or beliefs, just expressing what I was trying to articulate. I think you've invited me to that document. Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah, you did. And you have, you have some lovely comments at the end of it, um, <laughs> because I think if, if you want to, pro- if you want to protect, you know, the freedom to give birth as you want with who you want, where you want, if you want to protect the ability to to nourish your pregnancy as you see fit or to release your pregnancy as you see fit. If you want to be able to die in the manner that you want to die, you know, yeah, autonomously, you know, as you live. It's like, it's harder and harder to do those two things, birth and die. Yeah. The way that you want, yeah. <laughs> despite the yeah. being sacred processes. Yeah. We need strong legal protection for these things. And some of the strongest legal protections we have are under the umbrella of religion. So mm. I'm like, okay, I actually really am very quite serious about starting the goddess church. Yeah. Do you think it would be okay to read a couple of the, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, let me just open up my screen here so I can see. So Hermine Hayes Klein, who's a friend of both of ours, and many of you might know her, she's a human rights and birth attorney. So she, I told her some ideas. She's like, I would join that church. Get me signed on. <laughs> so I, I think we need some, some legal genius behind it too. But I, I really think if we can get this registered, um, there, there's some possibility of having protections of a sort that we've never had before, you know, and I'm also thinking in terms of midwifery regulations, like some states have great midwifery regulations and midwives are quite autonomous and some are so terrible. Like they're, you know, you're forced to give a woman a vaginal exam X number of hours and wow. they can't do anything. If you even sneeze, you have to go off and you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z, and you're not allowed to let them go past 41 weeks. And, you know, this, the fact that, States are regulating women's bodies in a way that's micromanaging everything, you know, and there are some states where you're not allowed to use your own vagina in most circumstances because of how the, the midwifery regulations are written. And it's just so nonsensical. Yeah. And I was like, I need to start a religion that protects this and specifically that protects the ability of people to attend people during birth and death right. as religious officiants of some sort, you know, like that we reject the state's ability to regulate that if it's within the exercise of our religion. Um, so, so some of the thoughts I had about like, what do I mean when I say the goddess? Because, you know, having come from a an upbringing where, you know, I had a literal belief in like a deity um, and kind of then going through the process of that dissolving mm -hmm. and questioning, you know, what I had assumed to be true in my life. You know, I, it's not so much that I believe that there's some like mystical goddess up in the skies, but that it's more of a principle that, that embodies all of us. So I, these are just some rough thoughts that I had, like, who is the goddess? Um, the goddess is life and death, light and darkness, sickness and health, chaos and order, masculinity and femininity. This idea that, you know, there so many of especially like kind of the Judeo Western Christian religious traditions that we have. They're all so much like good and bad. Like yeah. God is good. Satan is evil. You know, like it's always like one thing versus another thing. And this, my concept of, you know, what I would call the goddess is this thing that encompasses the totality of being mm. that there is no bad and good in the sense of like, you know, the goddess is good. And then like the anti-goddess, you know, like <laughs> thing, you know, but it's, it's both sides, right. You know, like, mm. you know, dark and light together. That's, that's, that's wholeness, right. Um, the yin and yang, the together, that's, yeah. that's a whole cycle, right. The goddess seeks for balance and oneness. I mean, for, for me, that's, it's, it's like, so really simple, but also really profound. It can be easily turned into a trite phrase, but I think there's something behind this idea that, we're both individuals and we're also one, like we're all part of the same thing, right? We're the goddess's body. Like when we worship the goddess, we become one with her. Like mm. we are literally the body of the goddess. Like that's what the goddess is, 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 is basically moving through us. You know, the earth is the goddess's body. And when we harm the earth, we harm the goddess and we harm ourselves. Absolutely. You know, um, that the goddess is embodies both masculine and feminine qualities um, wholeness comes from nurturing a healthy balance of all of the qualities the goddess holds. You know, you're not saying these are good and these are bad and we're only doing the good things where we're trying to avoid the bad. It's like, we're just taking it all in and like integrating it and finding this, this, you know, this interbalance. Yeah. And some, so, so, you know, I was thinking like, how, how would we worship the goddess? Like, what would that look like if I were to start a church? <laughs> and something that was very important to me was, um, would be serving as an attendant, a healer, a guide or a witness to women during childbirth in the setting of their choosing 
and doing the same thing as um, women either sustain or release their pregnancies and doing the same things as people die, you know, being a guide, a healer, or even a witness to death where people choose the way they die and they choose who they want to be with them. Um, we could worship the goddess by encouraging vibrant, joyful, and consensual sexuality, you know, um, by seeking communion and wisdom and oneness through plant and psychedelic medicines. Yeah. Um, through upholding everybody's, you know, right to bodily autonomy, um, protecting other people's freedoms and, and rights as vigorously as we protect our own, because we're one. We, we can't fight against somebody's right and want our rights to be upheld. You know, worship would be protecting the earth from pollution, from overusing resources, from species extinction, from habitat degradation. Worship would be even just going out and being in the natural world, admiring it, protecting it, enjoying it. You know, it would be, um, worship would be to me, um, sustaining, finding ways to sustain human life to ensure that we share resources equitably, um, without undue harm to the environment or to the plants and the animals that we share our world with, you know, respecting that we're not the only ones here, you know, um, worship will be finding ways to, to get rid of hunger and poverty and war and economic inequality. Like that's, that's worship. And for me, the highest form of worship, if, you know, we got to the pinnacle of what this faith is about, it's, it's really attending people as they transition into or out of life in all the forms protecting women's bodily autonomy during pregnancy and birth, especially that's for me, like, that's my focus right now, you know, and I, you know, I really see the sacrament as, you know, if we had a sacrament, if we had to define that, that would be, you know, the, the judicious use of plant or fungi or psychedelic medicines to seek wisdom, to seek healing and to seek oneness. And, you know, the, the idea of worship services to me would be, I don't know. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to create a set of rules, but it's just like, you know, what would this look like? Like I can see like, you know, you might want to take it and follow the faces of the moon. And at a full moon, maybe you gather in communion with people and you do things that are outward focused. And maybe at the dark moon, you decide that that's the time for inward introspection and reflection. Right. And maybe on the, the, um, the halfway phases of the moon, you decide like, I don't know. I mean, this is all just kind of like, what would it look like? I don't know. This is how it could look like. Maybe you, you, decide that it's time to do service in the community and within your environment. And you, you find ways to, to like heal and nourish the body of the goddess in whatever ways you can. Right. So like, I don't know, those are some of my thoughts. And I think, it's I really think like, I think like, it, you know, we could build temples that are temples of the goddess where like Nathan, you were thinking of the same thing. It's a center for life and death and everything in between where <clears throat> if you could imagine a space that, you go and you support somebody who's getting a pregnancy release and next door, somebody's having a baby and next door, somebody's dying and next door, somebody's doing a, a guided psychedelic session because they're going through PTSD. And this, this place where you come to, to heal and to like, to be part of the life cycle mm -hmm. and to be like a, a witness of the entrance and the exit of life. That's that to right. me would be like the highest yeah. kind of most sacred space that we could build. So that's my thoughts. You know, what if we could turn that into a church and, yeah. and into a, a thing that has yeah. some actual legal protection and has exists, you know, not just as a beautiful idea, which is fine if it only exists as an idea, but what if we could make it exist as a thing in this world and on this earth that, that for me would be really interesting to pursue. Amen. 
believe it or not, I've actually been working on this on the side. I actually had forgotten about the document you sent me, which was a year plus ago. And mm-hmm. it was actually it was actually when you were at our dinner table in Louisville when you first came here for the first breach workshop that um, you brought this up. And I had been thinking about this for years. And then you basically just said, here's a document on, you know, it's like you extracted it from my heart. Like, here's w- what you've been feeling. And then you were like, see ya. And um, I'd been thinking <laughs> about it. I, I had added some notes. But the, the bad news about this idea is that it's very confronting to people. The good news is a lot of people are feeling equally confronted by it and are actually collaborating for these types of centers to come together. And um, in my, in, you know, it, what I've got going on in this realm is that we've already started the process of putting together a team to make a center like this on maybe 150 to 200 acres. And, you know, the, the, the notion, the elevator speech I give people is what if instead of the way that most babies are being born, especially in the United States, not always, but 99% of the time with the bright lights and the distractions and the needle sticks and all that stuff that happens in those beautiful moments right after a baby comes, what if instead a baby was born to the sound of singing that was one of the things that was in my mind, like, you know, like yeah. having, you know, the, especially like if you had to have a woman who had to have a cesarean section in the center, right. let's say you could find a way to do that, right? Like that we would have like, that would in a way be like surrounded by people who could sing her through this. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I just interrupted you because I was like, I was having that same idea, this idea that we would sing her through like what must be the most like earth shattering experience is voice to know that you're cutting your whole body open. Right. To bring this baby out, you know, like, and how we ought to surround that with like, you know, (laughs) angelic choirs, you know, like witnessing what you're going through because you care, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, so that little bit, what if instead of all of those distractions, what if a, a birthing person, their partner in this baby, they emerge through the portal this transformation of spirit is underway and the community surrounds them with love, compassion, and singing, healing frequencies, amber lights, everything down to the shape of the rooms and the buildings being in biophilic design with less right angles, more of an Mm -hmm. open door to nature. And right outside, we've got biodynamic regenerative agriculture. We're caring for the soil in the way that we care for our bodies. So everything in between is the holistic lifestyle approach to healing and reharmonizing with nature, as Rudolf Steiner would say in anthroposophic medicine. What if that was actually healthcare? What if that was our hospital? And mm-hmm. the big vision is we'll have operating rooms. We'll have a whole hospital there and we have birth and you flip the coin and you get death. And the same goes for how we die. And it's immersed in nature. It's immersed in the moon cycles. It's immersed in the sun cycles. We've structured water. We've got biogeometry. We've mitigated EMF. And we've really focused on community and intention with how, with everything from how we touch to how we have sex to how we communicate and interact around a giant communal dinner table. It sounds like, it sounds like what we're talking about is like a cult. And that's why it's so confronting to people. But that's another <laughs> one of those phrases that you said stops the critical thought. I'm just asking people to imagine what would it be like if you gave birth in that environment? And the answer, of course, is what a beautiful way for a baby to come in or what a beautiful way for a person to go out of the earth school oh. and back into the cosmos, oh. right? Into the, 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 the isness of the, of the universe. 
And um, the way that we're going to do it is on a sovereign path, forming a church. It probably will be an entheogenic church as well, because using psychedelic assisted psychotherapy or ketamine or those types of things mm -hmm. for PTSD to treatment, refractory depression to the existential pain that comes with dying, with facing mortality, which nobody likes to think about. We get it. But that's a that's mm -hmm. something we all have to go through. So you and I are very much in alignment here, and um, I'm not that far in the progress in, in in the process here. So I will definitely fold you back in to this conversation, and hopefully we'll get to chat more when you guys are in Louisville. I also will tell you I just interviewed Erin McMorrow. She's a PhD, started a, as a PhD at USC in urban planning, and then throughout her life and her experiences, she graduated into talking about soil health and regenerative agriculture, but then applying that to the divine feminine and masculine, the tantra, the, the chakras, the experience of, of uninhibited sexuality and how that's a driving creative force of the universe, you know, um, could also be called love, right? It's not just the pornographic notion that we have of sex. It is the mm -hmm. intimacy, the connection, that's actually what much of our planet is lacking. So she wrote this great book and I interviewed her. And I'll, I'll text you um, the, uh, the episode. I'll, I'll send it to you on Spotify on, uh, uh, when we're done with the call. But um, she wrote this book called Grounded and it kind of takes all of these topics you and I just described and puts it into a 200 page, beautifully, masterfully written book. Um, and I think the subtitle is A Fierce Feminine Guide to reconnecting with soil and healing from the ground up. It's, it's fantastic. Mm. And I'd love Ooh, to actually love give that. you a copy when you're in town. I've got a book of a case of her books. So, so there are other people that are talking about this, Rixa, and I thank you for sharing that. Um, we're going to bring the goddess church alive here eventually. Before, before we sign off here, um, let's talk a little bit about the breach workshop that's coming up and your work with breach without borders and anything else you want people to know about connecting with you. Yeah, we're coming to Louisville and a whole bunch of other places in 2022. Got March, April, May, really booked solid and starting to take bookings for June onward. If you want us to come train you in your area, you can find our current schedule. If you go to breachwithoutborders.org and just go onto our training tab and you'll find our schedule of upcoming workshops. We're adding new ones all the time. So check back. If you don't see your location there, um, you can get in touch with us and let us know if you want us to come and train where you are. And we can talk about you know, if you want to be our local organizer and help us find a space and help spread the word in the local birth community, we're more than willing to make it happen. Um, I'm also exploring the idea um, for training people in Europe in a little bit different fashion. Um, hopefully starting next, probably next um, December when I come back to France. I'm in France and I'm going to go back to the States for about five months and I'll come back to France. I kind of live between the two areas. But I'm actually thinking of establishing just a training center right where I live because I have another apartment that we are working on renovating underneath us where people can come and stay and I'll come just downstairs and train you for a day and you can come stay and come stay in Nice. You don't have to stay in the apartment, but you could come stay there, stay for as long as you want, make it also a little vacation and come up, up with up to four people at a time. Um, train, you know, if you have a couple of midwife or doctor friends and you want to make a trip out of it, come train, come to me and train. So that might be a possibility for those of you in Europe. I can also come anywhere in Europe too while I'm there, but sometimes it's hard to get enough people that I to justify having a whole workshop happen, but maybe people can come to me in small groups, even one at a time and train. But yeah, Bridge Without Borders is is here to serve you. We have so many great resources. If you go, um, you can see all sorts of things that we have for parents and providers. And the best way to support us, if you're a midwife or a doctor or a nurse or a student, midwife, resident, et cetera, is come take one of our workshops 
if you want to support us but don't need to have the breach training, we have lots of things you can do. You can donate. We have some fundraisers going on right now. So you can you can support us in other ways. Share the word to people who might find it useful. And we hope to see you there in Louisville if you're close to Nathan or elsewhere around the United States or further afield. So come train with us. We'd love to teach you. Yeah, I think our workshop is April 10th, if I recall, of 2022. So we'll be it'll be lovely to see you and David again. And anybody else, I know we've got a whole bunch of people already registered. So um, I'll put all the links to everything we've talked about to the best of my ability, because we uh, we were all over. That was a wide ranging conversation in the uh, show notes. Ricks, I thank you so much for giving me so much of your time and um, look forward yeah, to hearing you're more. Welcome. Seeing you soon. Great. Yeah. Bye-bye. Well, I can't imagine being in Rix's shoes. I was sweating just hearing her story. <laughs> Gosh, waiting that long for the baby's head to, to emerge after the entire body is out would be uh, stress-inducing, to say the very least. So I hope that everything went okay with that mom and her baby and her partner. I think the reason that these types of stories are important is because it really illustrates how you, if you're going to advertise yourself as a birth worker or a car mechanic or anything else out there, you better be very upfront with what your skills are. And to think that everything's just going to magically happen, you know, the way that nature intended it without ever needing to intervene, that is definitely a form of magical thinking. And... It's also not fear-mongering to say, hey, listen, sometimes these things happen, right? You know, from what I said about the term breach trial in the, in the very first, uh, in, in the intro here, yes, it's a rare occurrence, but when it happens, it, it's something that you have to know how to manage, which is why teaching people the management strategies and the maneuvers that can be used in that, you know, very, very rare, rare occasion knowing those maneuvers is critical. So if you advertise, yeah, I attend Breach uh, because you went to a workshop, that's part of it. But you need to continue to educate yourself. You need to continue to practice. You need to continue to work through simulations. And, you know, you would never go to, you never pay big money for somebody to come over and do your plumbing if they didn't train to be a plumber, right? I mean, there might be somebody out there who generally gets it but if they get into a really sticky situation do you want them to be like using gum and duct tape or do you want them to actually fix it the way that a trummer is trained to fix it the same goes for an electrician or any other licensing process there is a good reason for us to have people who are trained to do these things and more importantly for people to be upfront, upfront with their client that like yes i'm open to discussing attending your breach but i've only attended one or i've only attended two some people have attended 500. That's a person who can really mentor you if you are interested in attending breach or getting better at managing these types of situations. And it may take 500 before you have something horrible happen, you know, where you've got 15 to 20 minutes before the baby's head emerges. So I very, I really honor it and want to just really acknowledge Rixa and give her mad props for just being vulnerable in this conversation. I think that these types of conversations are critical for people to really keep in mind that yes, usually things go okay. And yes, that means that most people, even early on in their attendance of births as midwives or doctors or whatever, yes, things are probably going to be just fine. But we need to continue to educate ourselves and continue to remain humble 
about the possibilities that life may throw at us. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Holistic Obedient Podcast. We are a 501c3. Every donation counts in keeping our lights on. You can go to holisticobedientpod.com, get all the show notes. You can make a donation there. It's a tax-deductible donation. Remember, we're providing education, information, entertainment. We are not a replacement for the advice given to you by medical doctors. This is merely a matter of bringing people on to have healthy conversations about how to better care for women. Um, If you want to find me, Nathan Riley, MD, you can go to belovedholistics.com. You can join my practice. I'm happy to care for you and your family. You can also sign up for my collaborator program if you're out there and you're a midwife, if you're a doula, if you're a childbirth educator, health coach, check practitioner, whoever, if you want to have an MD, a real life doctor to bounce things off of in order to help better care for your clients, please find my collaborator program. Through both websites, you can sign up for my newsletter. I send out a nice little weekly newsletter, no spam, nothing like that. Not going to sell you on anything. I just find it a nice way to engage with the people that are in, a, in alignment with what I'm putting out there. And um, I'll include a little video to talk about some things that are going on with me and how I'm continuing to educate myself and, you know, where my mind's at about certain things. That's it for today, guys. I want you to please go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash beloved. You can save 20% immediately off of any of their amazing products. Waveblock.com is a similar deal, 25% off. Enter code beloved at checkout. These are two companies that I wouldn't be talking about if I didn't use their products and really believe in what they're bringing into the world, which I think is is positive through and through. So until next time, I'm Dr. Nathan Riley, MD, the Holistic OBGYN, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I'll see you next time, everybody.